right, here we are back with another episode of the Two Planker Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Schaefer, and today on the show we have David Lesh. I, I love hearing about your life. I think it's definitely very unique. Are you involved in like, so, I mean, you're traveling around all summer. Are you involved in the day-to-day operations of your business? Or do you no. like, are you just the owner kind of from afar? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I've tried to remove myself from the day-to-day stuff as much as possible. I ran the company by myself for the first year. Um, but since then, you know, I've had uh, employees who deal with like social media, customer service, order fulfillment. Um, I still deal with, you know, uh, design. Um, I oversee the people who, you know, manage our website. I kind of do deal with that. Um, I obviously, you know, do like the hiring. Um, I deal with, you know, general marketing decisions and sales that we're going to do, um, putting together, you know, campaigns. Uh, I deal with the factories, all the, you know, back and forth at the factories and the design process, the shipping of the stuff, you know, customs, uh, you know, just kind of general timing, just over overseeing stuff. Um, but I mostly have removed myself from the day-to-day stuff. So I can, I can pretty much go anywhere, anytime, which is amazing. Yeah. And so I did a whole stretch of small business episodes. So we could definitely get into like more of the business stuff, but I mean, staying with modern time, how, how long have you been in like this current role where you're kind of managing from a distance? How many years? Um, I mean, I've, I've been able to step away from my business from the beginning. Um, even, you know, from, I, I helped ship the first batch of stuff in 2009. Um, but then even halfway through that winter, I had hired a local order fulfillment place to do the order fulfillment because I was still skiing professionally and traveling all over the world. And I, I couldn't be around to, you know, do the day-to-day stuff, nor did I want to. So, um, I mean, I would say basically the entirety of the last 13 years, I've, I've had myself in a position to, to just kind of, you know, remove myself from the day-to-day stuff. Yeah. And I mean, this, and so this is like the most common question that I think people have about you. Cause I already know the answer. Like a lot of people think you come from money and I already know that's not true. Cause I've done a lot of research on you, but is, is, is uh, Vertica your full, like your primary source of income now, or are you mostly living off um, of Vertica, like investments? Yeah. I mean, you know, before I started Vertica, I think the most that I'd ever made in a year was between like 12 and 15 grand. Um, I was, you know, generally homeless during the summer, living out of my car, visiting friends and family, traveling around, hopping freight trains. Um, I would, you know, work. Um, then in the fall, I'd, you know, be, I'd be serving or working as a, you know, car mechanic or security guard or at a ski shop. And then when I started skiing professionally, then I really tried to just mostly, you know, ski, which was not any more money than I'd been making, but it was allowing me to travel around the world on somebody else's dime, which was great. Um, but really I'd never made more than about 12 or 15 grand in a year until I started Vertica. So, um, my situation changed very quickly as Vertica, you know, immediately kind of took off to answer your question. Vertica has since then been my main source of income and still is, but, um, I now have other supplemental streams of income, um, that have been, you know, really, really helpful in kind of building my, my financial success to, to where it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the reason there's a lot of like doubters or, you know, people saying that it's, it's got to be your parents money is just because it's hard to imagine a like a ski clothing company taking off so much that could fully support kind of like the lifestyle uh, that at least you're sharing with everyone. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a safe assumption. Most people who are in the ski industry do come for money. That's what allowed them to, to you know, ski every day and to get good and to get sponsored. And, and you know, that's, I think, a very safe assumption. Um in my case, it happens to not be true. 
Um, but I don't care if that's what people think. It doesn't really bother me. That that's probably what I would assume if if I didn't, you know, know know better about somebody. That would be my first assumption. So it doesn't really bother me. Yeah, I mean, so do you want to tell people about your early childhood? I mean, you you were born in the U.S., but I mean, after that, it gets pretty uh, pretty interesting. Um, yeah, my parents are you know hippie artists, musicians, and uh, um, they had a twenty thousand dollar grant from a, a American an Indian musical association, but based in America. So they gave my mom 20 grand to go to India. And that $20,000 supported our family of three, which became a family of four. And my sister was born in India for a total of five years. So our total family budget in India was $4,000 a year, um, which in India, you know, you can make, especially, you know, in the eighties, you can make go a long way. Um, you know, we didn't have a car. We didn't have our own house. We lived in a flat. Um, and it was pretty, pretty sparse, you know, living, but we, 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 we did fine. You know, it was, it was decently comfortable. Um, I was in India until I was uh, six, you know, grew up there speaking Hindi and Marathi. English was like my third language, had a bunch of Indian friends. I was the only uh, white kid in a town of like 3 million people. Um, and uh, went to school there and learned, you know, how to read and write and cursive and, um, then we really only came back to America in uh, 91 because of the Gulf War. Um, Saddam Hussein, you know, and Bush were going at it. And Saddam Hussein, Bush was, Bush Sr. Um, was threatening to bomb Islamic holy places. And had he had done that, all of the Muslims around us would have come to our house and killed us. So once we realized that that really was what would have happened and could happen if he if Bush had, had bombed, you know, a temple or something, we were out of there within like six days. We packed, my dad packed up all his art. Um, my sister was, I think, seven days old at the time or five days old, wrapped her in a blanket. She didn't even have clothing, got onto the next flight and we were back to America. So um, we didn't have any money and we were living at my grandma's house for a while in Madison, Wisconsin. That's kind of why we ended up there is because we didn't really have anywhere to stay. And that was, that was kind of the one place we could stay. So we lived with my grandma for a while. My parents got jobs teaching in the schools in Madison. And uh, eventually we saved up and we got our own apartment. We had the four of us living in a two bedroom apartment um, in kind of a shitty area of Madison. Um, and then after maybe a, a year or two, we, we bought um, a very small house in uh, the far corner of Sherwood Hills, um, which gave me access to a pretty good school network, a good you know school situation. Um, but I was definitely the poorest, you know, kid at school. All the other kids were like doctors and lawyers kids. And I was like the broke, you know, hippie artist kid um, that lived in like the weird fucking house down, you know, in the corner of the neighborhood. Um, but, you know, it was an interesting childhood. I didn't really fit in. I was a, um, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed white boy who had just come from India. I was speaking English with a British Hindi, Hindi accent. Um, the kids didn't really know what to make of me. I didn't fit in. So I had a hard time, um, you know, making friends and also keep in mind that I had already been going to school for a couple of years. So, you know, we were like playing with blocks and shit in kindergarten and I was like reading, writing, cursive, math, the whole deal. So I was instantly bored with school and I was, you know, goofing off and fucking around. And I, you know, it was just not, school was never, never my jam. Yeah. Did, I mean, when you were in India, did you realize like how fucked up the situation was when you guys had to leave like that? Or were you just so, so no, young? That you didn't I mean, I was, you know, five, six years old. I didn't, 
I, India was all I knew. I, you know, India for me was, was home. I was not excited to go to America. I had, I had no idea really what America was. Um, it just was this faraway place that was unfamiliar to me that my friends weren't there. You know, I had all kinds of great friends in India. Um, and so I was not excited to leave India. And uh, of course, you know, now I'm very glad that I didn't like grow up in India for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. So when you get when you get to America, you're not fitting in for like two completely different reasons. First of all, like you're the new kid that doesn't really speak English, but you're also kind of smarter than the rest English. of the kids. I spoke oh, English. Okay, sorry, I, spoke yeah. with a, I spoke it with a, a strange accent, you know, uh-huh. um, I think I lost the accent within probably six or nine months. But in the beginning, I had, you know, I had a, a British Hindi, Hindi accent. It was yeah, I didn't fit in for sure. Yeah. Um, from what I've heard from what you've said in other interviews, like it didn't really get much better in terms of uh, like your behavior and anything after that, right? Like in terms yeah. of- Yeah. I mean, I think that I like kind of held it together for the most part through elementary school. Um, in middle school, I, I just like, you know, I wasn't like the cool kid. Like all the other kids got to go shopping at JCPenney and like had the new cool Nike shoes and I, I had to go shopping at Goodwill and buy clothing that didn't fit me. And I just like, wasn't, I just like, was not the cool kid, you know? Um, and I just, you know, I was, I was kind of awkward and I was bad at talking to girls. And I, I don't know, it just, I, I didn't, I was not where I wanted to be. You know, all the other kids, they got to go on vacation to Aspen with their family and go skiing and, and, you know, do cool stuff. And like, my parents, you know, we didn't get to eat out. Like we, we didn't have a car for a while. Like we, you know, like our vacation was like going canoeing on the Wisconsin river, which is like all we ever did for any activity, birthdays, you know, holidays, whatever is like canoeing and camping on the Wisconsin river, which was great. But like, you know, I wanted to like go places and do things. And so basically from, um, I mean, literally from the time I came back from India when I was six until I started skiing professionally. I did not travel anywhere outside of America. Um, you know, I went to like Mexico and Canada. I drove there myself when I was 16, but like, you know, I, I was not traveling. I didn't, I didn't have a passport. Um, you know, you could go to Canada and Mexico at the time with the, with the driver's license. So, um, but basically between age six um, and, you know, probably 21, I did not travel. So as soon as I had the means to start traveling, I, I started doing a lot of work. Yeah. I kind of got off track, but basically like I held it together through elementary school and then in middle school, I wanted to fit in. I wanted to like be able to, you know, have friends and stuff. And I started smoking weed and that was really like the first kind of naughty, bad thing that I was doing. I started smoking weed in, I don't know, I think sixth or seventh grade. And that allowed me to kind of like chill out a little bit and make friends with people who are also into smoking weed and we'd go skiing at Tyrol and go sneak off into the woods and get baked out of our fucking minds and then go to the cafeteria and steal food and go, you know, roll down the hill and just be high, high little kids. So I think that kind of set me off down this, this path. Originally I wanted to like get good grades and graduate high school, you know, and go to college and become a business, you know, consultant and get a job at a business consulting firm. And like my uncle did and really like kind of follow that professional path. And once I learned in elementary or in middle school that 
your middle school grades didn't matter. They don't count towards college because my friend had an older brother who uh, had just kind of, you know, gotten into to high school and he told us, yeah, you know, they don't even look at your, your middle school grades. And I was like, this is like a revelation to me. So I was like, oh, great. Like I'm going to fuck around during middle school. And then like, I'll get it together in high school. Well, I had a lot of fun fucking around and I made friends and I was like, you know, kind of living a, a better life. And so when I got to high school, that sort of continued. I also did a bomb threat in eighth grade and I got expelled. So I went to high school a quarter late. So that already set me off. I was known as like the bomb threat boy in high school. So that already set me off on this path in high school of like being a hooligan. So that sort of just, you know, stuck with me through high school. Uh, yeah. I mean, did you feel like it was hard to shake that or did you not even care about trying to shake that image? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I have shaken that, right? Like I still to this day get into trouble and I'm in the news for, you know, posting whatever to my Instagram and pushing people's buttons and fucking around. So I don't think I've ever shaken it, but I definitely, you know, I, I had a lot of friends, um, some of which are dead or in jail now um, who you know, what kind of went down that, that path of crime. Um, you know, we were stealing cars and doing pretty complicated robberies and breaking into places and doing heists. And, you know, it was great. It was fun. But um, I, I knew that it was not the path to, to, to go down in your adulthood. When you're a kid, you know, you go to juvie for a couple of weeks and you get an ankle bracelet and they let you out and no big deal. You go back to high school. But when you're an adult, there's more serious consequences. And so I really told myself that I'd, I'd, I'd clean up when I was an adult. And I did for the most part, but old habits die hard, you know? And so um, I think that there is still kind of like that, that troublemaker um, side of me that, that probably is to, to blame for, um, you know, a lot of the, 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 the things that I, that I do and, you know, the buttons that I push. Yeah. We'll get to, we'll get to current events later, but I mean, you definitely haven't continued on the track of stealing cars and, uh, no, and committing no, robberies. Point, yeah. yeah, at some point in high school, like I was just, you know, a lot of bad things were happening to me. And I, at some point in high school, started kind of believing in karma. And I decided that I still wanted to keep kind of being a hooligan, but I wanted to do it in a way that wasn't going to affect individuals negatively. So before that, we were just like fucking people shit up left and right. And I think a lot of that karma, you know, really, really came back to haunt me. Um, I had a lot of, you know, really bad, bad stuff going on. Um, but at some point we decided we were only going to like rob large corporate organizations. So, you know, we were robbing like Circuit City and Best Buy and these like big kind of corporate companies that, you know, we didn't really care about. Um, so at some point I started sort of believing you know, what goes around comes around. And I started cleaning up my, you know, my, my hooligan ways a little bit. Yeah. And so I, I just got to ask, since it, it kind of all originated with talking about your parents, like what were your parents, you know, kind of peace loving hippies thinking, watching their son get into all this trouble? They weren't stoked. I mean, they were struggling to um, control me. My dad uh, didn't have any custody over my sister and I starting in like um, I think sixth or seventh grade. And I didn't talk to my dad for many years after that long after high school. So it was just my mom really, who was the one who was trying to parent me. And she was struggling to control a very defiant, headstrong, independent, um, you know, little 12 year old, 11 year old. Um, so I, she had a hard time with it for sure. You know, she, 
she, I think, made a lot of mistakes in her parenting technique, and she went the path of trying to police me and be my boss rather than sort of like be there for me and help guide me through my adolescence, um, which I think she understands now that she she kind of made some some missteps there. Um, but you know, it all it all worked out. I didn't kill myself, um, regardless of how many cars I crashed and flipped and stole and you know the crazy shit that I did. I I managed to to stay together in one piece and, you know, I didn't end up in jail for the rest of my life. So, I, you know, she's, I, I think looking back on it, she would have done some things differently, but it, at, the, at the end of the day, it all turned out all right. Yeah, totally. So how did you, so how did you end up getting into the, the world of skiing and, and deciding I'm going to pursue that as a career? Basically I played hockey and soccer starting in um, like elementary school. I played, I think a total of 21 seasons of soccer and seven years of hockey um, and I went to state for both of them. I was on private um, select, you know, club teams and I was decent. I wasn't like the greatest, but I was, I was pretty good. I, I was definitely good enough to go play in high school, you know, varsity high school. Um, but what I realized, so, so in the middle school, we had these ski trips where you'd pay like some cheap amount of money. I don't know, hundred, 200 bucks for the whole season. And on Friday nights, they'd bus you to the local Hill that was open in, in the nighttime. And they were open until, I don't know, midnight or something. And you'd go ski all night long under the lights. Um, and so they'd provide rentals and they'd provide lift tickets. And so that was how I, I originally, you know, kind of started skiing. And I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. It was something that I could do um, with my friends that I didn't have a set schedule for. I didn't have to practice. I didn't have to, you know, show up at six in the morning and do drills. Um, I could just, you know, kind of do what I wanted to do. There was a lot of freedom in it. So I was immediately drawn to skiing and I skied a lot through middle school. Um, only on these ski trips, these, these 10 a year ski trips. So in high school, freshman year, you know, I, I did a bomb threat. So in eighth grade and I got expelled. So no matter what, I wasn't going to be playing high school sports, you know, the first quarter or semester because I was, I was expelled. I was not at school. So um, that combined with the fact that I knew that if you wanted to play high school sports, you had to go to class. Um, and if you didn't go to class, they wouldn't let you play. And I had no intention of going to class. I wanted to skip school, work on cars and smoke weed with my friends and go skiing. Um, and so I made a decision um, that I would rather not try out for varsity sports. Um, and I was just gonna like, you know, ski because that was like something I could do. So in the summertime I had mountain bike, I was into like urban mountain biking and, you know, kind of like freestyle mountain biking. Um, which was a great thing for us to do all, all summer. And in the winter, I'd ski, which was great because I don't have to wake up at five in the morning and practice. I could just skip school. I'd go bum rides to Tyrol with my, uh, you know, older upperclassmen friends. Um, and I, it worked out perfectly. I could skip school and do what I wanted to do. Um, and so I, the freshman year was the first year that I had my own skis and my own gear and a season pass to Tyrol. Could you give us a little bit of the eighth grade uh, bomb threat story? I feel like I skipped right over that and it's got to. Oh, I mean, yeah, I was already such a hooligan at that point in eighth grade. Um, there was this neighboring school, Cherokee, and they had a bomb threat every single day. Um, the kids there were just like, I don't know, it was a little closer to the ghetto, I guess. And they just were more, more hooligan-y. They, Cherokee had a bomb threat every, like almost every single day. The, that spring and you know the end of that year and every day they'd take all the kids they'd march them down to the local church for two hours while the fire department you know looked for bombs in the building they had to do it i'm sure for liability reasons 
And so the kids would get to skip like half a day of school every day. And I was like, what the fuck? How come like we never get to do this? Like nobody here has the balls to do a bomb threat. So um, I did a bomb threat with my buddy. He ended up telling on me. Um, and so, you know, I, I got expelled for, for doing a bomb threat. Now that was actually how I learned to play golf was um, I was, you know, out of school that whole summer and the quarter before and the quarter after. So I was out of school for many months. Um, and so I'd sneak on to the second hole of the Odana golf course every day. And, and, and that's kind of how I, I learned to play golf. There you go. Yeah, I feel like I was considering just let letting it slide and keeping with the timeline, but that's uh, I wanted to dive into that. So yeah, I mean, you know, it was I was it was it obviously it was a stupid thing to do, um, but it was successful. I was you know hoping to miss some school, and I ended up I ended up missing quite a bit of school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you got to go to school if you want to play sports. Skiing, you don't have to go to school. So um, you get out of high school. And um, from what I understand, you went to Portland of all places. What, what was the decision making? Like, what was your kind of, I mean, before you could explain your move, like what was your view of skiing at the time? Were you tuned into like all the ski movies, ski magazines? Like what was your, the extent of your knowledge of skiing? So I was obsessed with skiing. My entire, every inch of my room in my basement at my mom's house was covered with magazines from Freeze. I don't know if Freeze Skier was a magazine yet, but at least Freeze Magazine. Um, you know, this was, this was like my freshman year was 1999. Um, and I really started getting into like the freestyle ski thing um, a couple of years before that. So probably like 96, 97, um, before there were twin tips, you know, the, the 1080 was the first twin tip and that was like 99. Um, and so I was very much tuned into the ski world, but there wasn't, you know, it wasn't like today, there wasn't the internet, there wasn't these websites, there wasn't videos online, there wasn't, you know, movies. I mean, there was like, you know, the Warren Miller movies or something, which I didn't really have any, and I didn't really care about. It wasn't really core free, freestyle skiing. Um, you know, I, I grew up skiing at Tyrol where they, they had one of the first half pipes, hand dug half pipes in the world, um, but skiers weren't allowed in it. It was only for snowboarders. And we'd go in there anyway, and we'd get kicked out for the day. And you'd come back the next day and sneak into the pipe again, and it'd kick you out. And, you know, that was, there, there weren't, you know, we, I remember the first rail that was at Tyrol, you know, it was like probably 90, I don't know, 97 or something. They just had a little handrail that had broken off one of the handrails, you know, at the cafeteria and they just stuck it in the snow and people were like grinding this four foot long rail. Um, so I was definitely there in the beginning of the sport when there wasn't much media. And as soon as there was some media, oh, you better believe I was subscribed to every magazine. I was, you know, buying the VHSs and playing them over and over until the VHS tape literally wore out and broke and, the, you know, the VHS tape wouldn't play anymore. Um, so I was very tuned into the world of freestyle skiing and we traveled to, you know, upper peninsula of Michigan and mainland Michigan and Minnesota for comps. Um, we'd carpool and I, I was, you know, competing every chance that I could and, um, you know, totally self-taught, just kind of learning, you know, we didn't have trampolines or water ramps or, um, you know, foam pits or video review, no, you know, and you couldn't have, you couldn't even see what you looked like. You know, we had a high eight camera that you could, you know, videotape yourself on and play it back on a VHS player, but there wasn't like an iPhone. You could just like see what you looked like. So the learning curve was definitely steeper and we didn't have examples of, you know, the, the pro skiers at the time, you know, JFQ Son and, you know, Shane Zox and the whole like Canadian freestyle team, they were just kind of figuring out the sport for the first time. So we were, you know, we didn't have, people doing dubs and triples to, to, to look up to, to kind of, you know, copy. We were all just kind of figuring it out 
you know, ourselves at the same time. So to answer your question, I was totally tuned into the world of skiing. And as soon as high school ended, I just knew that I wanted to go somewhere where I could ski. I wanted to live in a bigger city. Um, and I also wanted to be close to skiing. So my options you figure, you know, are like Seattle, maybe Reno, maybe San Fran or Sacramento, but like, that's a bitch. Um, you know, there's just not that many options that have cities with skiing nearby. So Portland was kind of a good, a good fit for that. So I was living on the east side of Portland in Gresham. Um, and I was skiing Mount Hood, like, you know, 120 days a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, did you know anyone out in Portland or did you just send it out there on your own? Um, I had driven through Portland for like half an hour one time in my car the summer before I'd never really, I'd never spent a night there even, but I liked the look of the town. I remember when I drove through and I drove over the, the Willamette river, um, in the Columbia, I was like, Oh, this looks like a cool place. And so that was about all I needed to, um, to move there. I knew, um, two guys, I had two sort of friends who were there at the time, um, that, you know, at least, at least I knew somebody there, but no, I didn't have like a, a scene set up, uh, in Portland. I just kind of, I also wanted to get about as far away from Wisconsin as I could. So that, that worked for that. Yeah. And I mean, so how did it go once you were finally out there and had like unfettered access to skiing pretty much? Um, it was great. I, I took the next year off. Um, I, I, I did want to try to fight my way through college, but I wanted, I needed to get residency in Oregon to get in state tuition. So, um, I took a year off and I was working some jobs out there. Um, and I started, you know, skiing. I just had, had kind of part-time random jobs that would still allow me to, to ski a lot. I was skiing probably at least five days a week. Um, I think I put 120,000 miles on my car each year for the two years that I was out in Oregon. I was you know, skiing every day and I was driving weed back to Wisconsin, you know, once a month. Um, so I was, I was doing a lot of driving, um, but it was great. You know, we, we didn't have the greatest of winters. It was the two winters between like 03 and 05. Um, and they were pretty shitty winters out in the Northwest. So I kind of left and I'd go to Tahoe and I'd go to Colorado and travel around and see friends and ski other places. Um, and after two years of, of shitty Oregon winters and it not being the scene for me, that was when I made the move to Colorado. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like, when did you first start seeing professional success? I mean, professional success, you said you didn't make more than, you know, 15 grand a year, but like, when did the ski, the ski industry side of things pick up for you? And they're saying, okay, like, Hey, come out on this video shoot. Hey, come out on this photo shoot. Um, when I moved to Colorado, things started to pick up for me. I got my first sponsor out in Oregon. Um, and then I won a few like little kind of local comps out there. And then I moved to Colorado and I got my, you know, first kind of real sponsors and eventually started getting, getting paid by them. Um, and, uh, you know, it started off slow. This was like a small travel budget and a um, little bit of money here and there. And it sort of kind of built and, and grew as I um, got better and I got more exposure. I started shooting with some local movie companies in Colorado. And then that kind of segued into, you know, shooting with uh, Rage and Level One and going on trips and, shooting with some photographers in Europe and spending some, you know, winters in New Zealand. And um, it just kind of grew, grew from there, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and so you obviously have this entrepreneurial mindset now, and I know that like a lot of entrepreneurs are okay with uncertainty. So at that time, were you thinking to yourself like, shit, this, the ski thing better work out or I'm screwed or were you completely okay? Like just making it work, living super cheap, you know, being I okay never, I never had any delusions of um, skiing being, you know, a real career. I wasn't good enough 
Um, you know, I wasn't good enough to be in the X Games or, you know, the Olympics weren't a thing then. Um, but I, I wasn't at the top level of the sport. I was hardworking and I was a good, you know, backcountry skier and I could throw some tricks in the backcountry. And I was like a decent, you know, well-rounded skier. But and I, I was also a good handrail skier. I, I, that was kind of my forte is I could grind any, any urban handrail. Um, but I knew that I wasn't good enough to, to be, you know, making real money doing it. So for me, I was just doing it because I love skiing. Um, and it was a way for me to kind of get paid to do what I love to do. And I also got to travel on somebody else's dime, which was great. Um, but I had no delusions of it leading to any kind of an actual career. I, my, my plan in life was to just sort of, you know, eke my way through school. I was going to a semester of college every year or two, you know, I'd take a, a couple community college classes and get some more credits out of the way. Um, and my plan was just to eventually graduate college um, and then kind of, you know, pursue some kind of a business career and, you know, some kind of consulting firm or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you weren't, you were just like, all right, I'm just going to do the straight and narrow once I'm, uh, once I'm back in college and finish. Yeah. I like somehow envisioned this like professional nine to five life for myself. Um, just because that's all that I knew, you know, I, I didn't, you know, this is before social media and this is before, fucking you know influencers and tiktokers and youtubers and this is like you know you got a job like you know my 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 ski bumming was the most like you know non-traditional lifestyle and job that i could even fathom up you know and now you got kids like yeah i'm gonna be like a tiktoker for a living like you know, like what the fuck um that was not a thing you know i just figured that at some point i'd have to like get a job you know uh, so that was that was my only vision for my life yeah and when did you, when did that kind of illusion of you living a normal nine to five life kind of disappear i think you know through my years of skiing professionally it taught me that there's a way to um structure your life that is non-traditional that you don't have a boss where you can work for multiple companies and have different contracts and you know, provide value to different, you know, companies and people and make your own money, you know, on the side here and there. And there's just, I, I think through the, the process of skiing professionally and, um, you know, I was selling some photos, I was into photography, I was designing some websites, I was, you know, doing some marketing and some just random stuff on the side. So I just kind of realized that there's a way to structure your life where you don't maybe have to work for the man or have a job. Um, but I wasn't making all that much money, you know, doing that stuff. So I figured at some point, if I really wanted to make money, I'd have to just like fucking bite the bullet and get a real job. So, and I, I, I've always wanted to, you know, have money and, and do things with, you know, with money. I wanted to, you know, to travel and, and be able to do cool stuff. So I just figured at some point I would want money bad enough to where I would have to have to do the nine to five thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when I started the company, um, that was really the first moment where I was like, Oh, holy fuck. Like this could be a thing, you know, like the, I, I could, the, this is maybe a new, a new path in life. And it was. Mm -hmm. So, um, once you figured out, you could, you could string it together as a freelancer, um, kind of before freelancing and, and making it work on your own was super, super well-known and super widespread. What was the decision to, to go forward and make a clothing company and have that be your venture of choice? 
Um, that was my only opportunity. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any credit. I didn't have credit cards. I didn't have investors. I didn't have rich parents. I didn't have a trust fund. Um, I had no other opportunity to start a company. And um, I was just sick of, you know, the outer responses that I had at the time. Um, they weren't letting me get involved. They weren't letting me design the stuff that I wanted to wear. And um, I was really thirsty for business. I really, you know, just wanted to sink my teeth into something. Um, and so that spring of 2009, my girlfriend at the time was like, well, why don't you just do it yourself? Why don't you just start your own company? Um, and it almost took like somebody else saying it for it to maybe be like a possibility. And so I just uh, started, you know, 10, 12, 14, 16 hours a day, just sending emails and making calls and, you know, just doing research. And I, I didn't know shit about clothing. I mean, I, you know, I wear the same thing every single day. I don't, I don't love shopping. I don't, you know, I don't buy clothing. I don't really care what I wear. Um, and so I just had to teach myself about fabrics and construction. And I knew what I knew about ski clothing because I've been skiing for, you know, decades, but, and I knew what features I wanted and I knew how I wanted it to fit. I knew, I knew about ski clothing. Um, but I, you know, and in clothing in general, I didn't care about or have, and I still don't. Um, but it was really just my only opportunity to start anything myself. Um, and so I figured I could kind of leverage my, um, connections and reputation in the ski industry to launch a clothing brand and then use the money from the pre-orders to pay for the production, um, which is what I ultimately ended up doing. And, uh, it, uh, you know, worked out and the, the stuff was in high enough demand at the time. And there was no other, you know, there was, there was saga barely by, you know, a year or two before me, um, making the stuff, but, you know, besides that, there weren't, there weren't really any other companies making tall, bright, technical ski clothing with like a bunch of features. So, um, kids were willing to pre-order it and give me 500 bucks in the summertime and get the gear in, you know, December or January or whatever it was. Um, so it, uh, that, that was my only ability to start a company with no money. And so what year are we talking for, uh, for that? So the, my first idea of starting the brand would have been like May of 2009. Um, I was 23 at the time and then I turned 24, uh, that summer. And then I went, I was, I was homeless that whole summer. I was living in my girlfriend's parents' basement in Oregon. Um, and I was going to try to ski hood that summer, but I couldn't afford lift tickets or a pass. My car was broken down. I couldn't fix it. So we were borrowing our parents like 85 uh, Volvo. Um, and we were just like living in our parents' house. They were feeding us. Um, and I was totally broke. I ended up, uh, threatening some of my uh, sponsors from the year before they owed me collectively about two grand. Um, and so I threatened to sue them if they didn't pay me the two grand. And they coughed up the money, and that two grand was what I used to start Vertica. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I like a lot of the small business episodes I've been doing. It's a lot of people that figure figure it out on their own, watch YouTube videos, you know, maybe kind of look at what other other companies are doing. Like, what were your resources at the time for actually figuring out like how the hell to manufacture clothes and my get it out to the masses? My only resource was the internet. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know anyone who had started a successful company. I didn't have any connections. I, my only connections were in the ski industry, people who, you know, ran the websites and magazines and um, skiers, pro skiers and photographers. Those were my only connections. So they weren't, they were, they're helpful in launching the business, but they weren't helpful in knowing how to create the business. 
Um, and so I just did research on the internet. I put myself on China time. I was going to bed every day about 6 a.m. I'd just go back and forth to China all night long on Skype and email. Um, and just, you know, I'd hire translators if I had to, to, to help me translate. And ultimately I realized I just needed to only look at factories who had a decent English speaker on staff. Um, and I just designed the clothing myself and I made the website and I came up with the size charts and I took the photos and I just figured out I, I, there was no ability for me to hire anybody. I didn't have any money to hire anybody to do anything. So the only option was for me to figure it out. Um, and I didn't know shit about building a website. I didn't know anything about product photography. I didn't know anything about, you know, uh, I mean, I knew something about marketing just from my, my years of, of skiing for my, my sponsors. So I was kind of helping market their companies, but you know, I mean, social media was hardly a thing. Facebook had just kind of, you know, started up and I wasn't, I was not on Facebook yet. Um, I, th I think I had MySpace at the time. That was my only social media. Um, so, you know, it was, it was definitely a different world. I mean, there was, there, there was a, enough on the internet where I could figure stuff out. There definitely, you know, wasn't as much information on the internet as there is now and as many tutorials and, and you know, courses and that kind of stuff. But there was enough for me to, to, to figure it out. From the decision to, to start this venture up until whenever, like whenever, when it became, you know, okay, I'm going to pursue this as my main gig. How long was that? Like from decision to actually act to, you know, so this is somewhat successful. The timeline was first concept of starting Vertica was May of 2009. Went to Oregon within a couple of weeks of that. I was in Oregon that whole summer. It took me about three and a half months to start the company. That included everything through samples, you know, prototyping, website launch, everything. I moved back to uh, Boulder, Colorado that fall, and I was actually in school full time that that fall at CU. I was taking, I think, fourteen credits, or fifteen credits, um, and so I launched the company in, um, I think, like August ish. So sometime maybe in August um, in, in Boulder, when I was back in Boulder, I was living in a one bedroom apartment with my girlfriend um, on the hill. I was working uh, as a server um, at a, a breakfast and lunch place and I was going to school. And so from, from conception to launch was I think around maybe three and a half, maybe four months. Um, and within two days, I made more money in the first two days of launching Vertica than I'd made in the previous year of my life. Um, and so to answer your question, it was immediate. The, the, the it, I, you know, I thought it was going to take years to kind of gain momentum. Um, I thought I was going to, you know, continue kind of down my path of skiing professionally. And maybe, you know, I'd wear the gear and I'd have some of my pro skier friends wear the gear. And then after a couple of years, it would sort of gain some momentum and, you know, get some traction and then kids would start wanting it and it would take a while, but it was like overnight. I had my, you know, friends at the different, um, websites and magazines, post press releases, pro skier, David Lush starts out over brand. Um, and the sales just came in. I mean, it was literally instant. So I, I actually did finish that semester of school. I obviously never went back, but I did finish that semester of school. Cause I thought, you know, the company's not going to work out. It's going to, something's going to go wrong with it. It's going to collapse. This is not going to be enough to, to support me, but, um, very, very quickly I realized, okay, this is like a thing. Um, and this is definitely what I should be kind of putting my, my time and energy into. And so almost immediately, um, I started focusing more on 
my company and less on my skiing career. So I still did get paid to ski for, you know, some years after that, but that was not my focus anymore. I was not concerned with squeezing, you know, money out of my sponsors that didn't have any, I was better off spending that time and energy um, working on my own company and growing my own company. And so that's what I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so we opened up this whole thing with talking about what you've been doing this summer and basically what you've been doing for the past, you know, a decade. Um, when you look back on that decision to start the company, like, do was there ever, was, was there ever any moment where you were planning on like, okay, like after you committed that you said, uh, maybe this isn't for me. Like, did you have any second thoughts once you got on that train or was that over? Cause obviously it changed your life. Absolutely not. Um, you know, I didn't have any delusions of it succeeding. That's, I didn't tell anyone I was starting a company. I didn't tell my friends. I didn't tell my family. Um, my dad, I think knew, um, I had asked my mom and dad for $500 to help me start the company. And they both told me no. So they knew at least that I was going to try to start a company, but you know, it's like every, I was 23 at the time, every fucking moron college kids start some quote unquote clothing company. They go buy t-shirt blanks and hat blanks and they get them embroidered, screen printed down the street. And like, they've got a quote unquote clothing brand, you know? So I just didn't want to be one of these these kids who pretends that they've got a company. I, I had a buddy who I was friends with in high school who pretended to start a clothing company and he was just selling weed and he was just basically using it, you know, the weed money to, to create this clothing company. And no one ever bought a single fucking thing. It was just a total farce. And it was just kind of a joke, you know, like between our group of friends, he was like pretending to have this clothing company. And it was just like such a, it was such a joke. We just wasn't, it wasn't a thing. And you know, I just didn't want to be that. I wanted like, if it succeeded, great, but I didn't want to be a public failure. So I didn't tell anyone. So as soon as it did actually succeed and it became a thing, yeah, there was, you know, there were after some years after that, there was, there was a couple hard years. There was mistakes that I made and the company was not doing well at one point. And I was, you know, really financially against the ropes. So there were times there where I considered maybe it would go under, but I was certainly committed to doing everything that I could to, to make sure that it succeeded. Mm. Um, so I, I, at no point was I ever like, oh, you know, maybe this isn't for me. I mean, that, that was my only, that was my only thing. You know, there was nothing, I didn't have anything to fall back on. You know, I didn't, if, if Vertica didn't work out, like I was gonna have to go get a fucking job. So you better believe I, I did everything, anything that had to be done to make sure that Vertica, you know, succeeded. Yeah, and if it didn't succeed, obviously you just said that, you know, your plan was to go get a straight job. Do you think that you would have found your way back to starting your own company or were you, or For sure. do you think you had? Oh, to yeah. Well, I mean, once you have that lifestyle um, and that freedom, it's very hard to go back. I would have not done well in a corporate environment. I, I it would have been really, uh, it would have been a tough pill to swallow. If I had to show up to an office and go work in a cubicle and have a boss, like that would have been really fucking devastating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think once you have a taste of it, that it's, it's even, once you have a taste of freedom, it's even harder to give into it. You know, maybe if you went straight from high school to doing that, right. totally. it would have been easier, but. hundred percent. Yeah, no, it would, it would have been really shitty. And at some point I remember realizing, you know, in the beginning of the company, I, I, I kind of thought, well, if this doesn't work out, like I'm fucked. I have no, nothing else to fall back on. I'm going to have to like go get a job or do something, you know? And that would have been 
you know, I, at that point I'd, I'd become a pilot. So maybe I could have like gone into, you know, flying commercially, which would have been fine, but like the money wouldn't have been great and like wouldn't have been what I wanted to do as a career. So there, I had maybe some options, but I remember the moment when I really realized that even if Vertica somehow went under, that be, because of the connections that I had made in the you know, many years of having a business and, and you know, just all the people that I've met, I knew enough people where people knew who I was, they knew what I was capable of, they knew that I was a smart guy, that I was hardworking. Um, and I think I could have found myself in some other kind of entrepreneurial position where maybe I wouldn't have owned the company, but I would have been working kind of on my own for a company or, you know, I would have been able to do something that wasn't just like a standard job. And I remember when I sort of had that realization that I would never have to have a normal job again, and I would never have to go back to school because what I had, you know, learned and the connections that I had made and, you know, what I had done in having my own company was so much better and more significant than finishing college that I realized that I would never have to go back to college and I would never have to have a real job again. And that was like one of the best moments of my life where I was like, okay, so I'm here, made it, I've set myself up well enough for like, even if somehow were to go, like were to go under, which I don't think that that, that would happen. Um, even if it did, I would have enough other opportunities to live a life with basically the same lifestyle that I have now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, dream about being able to say that and building their own safety net and, you know, building kind of their own life and their own destiny. Do you think that everyone's built for it or does it take someone with a certain stomach to be able to go through that uncertainty and have it themselves? No, dude, people, you know, they, they, think, oh yeah, wouldn't that be nice to like, you know, not have a boss and start your own company. And, you know, they see me on social media traveling around the world and, you know, partying and flying airplanes and hanging out with all these girls and doing whatever the fuck I want. There is no way that 90% of these people would be able to stomach the risk and stress that goes into starting and running and growing your own business. You know, they just, it's not like, you know, running a little mom and pop coffee shop, you're managing, you know, an international brand and the, the image of that brand. And, you know, it's just, there's, there's major money at play and you've got employees and you've got, you know, liability and you're getting sued and, you know, there's just like stuff going on, you know, it's not, it's not just like this carefree thing. And at this point I have, you know, fine tuned it into a very, very efficient, well-oiled machine that is very, for the most part, hands-off and stress-free. At any moment, shit can go haywire, right? Like I could lose an entire shipment. My fucking container could fall off a ship on the way from China. And like that would derail, you know, my company to at least some extent. It wouldn't put it under, but it would be like a shitty thing. Um, there's always bad stuff that can happen, but I think I've got it now to the point where it's very manageable and stable and, and you know, self-sufficient and, and easy. But that takes a long time to, to get it there. And to get it there, I don't think most people have the work ethic and the risk, the ability to stomach that amount of risk, you know, in the interim to, to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Do you think it helped that you started when you're young, you know, you're 23, you don't really have any responsibilities or people are relying on you. Was that a big element of it? So I think the main thing was, is I didn't have anything to lose. You know, most times when people start a company, 
they have to take on debt. They have to um, take out, you know, loans. They have to have investors. They have to, there's, there's, there's real risk involved. For me, there was no risk involved because I didn't have anything. My risk was $2,000. And that $2,000, even at the time when that was my only money, I knew in the scheme of life that that was not a lot of money. And so my only risk was my, my image, was my reputation. Because if I failed publicly, if the company didn't really succeed, then people in the industry would be like, oh yeah, I remember when like, David Lesh tried to start that outerwear brand. And it was, you know, so my only risk was really my reputation. And even that, it would, it would have been manageable. You know, there, there's other pro skiers who have tried to start brands and they haven't really like become a thing. So I didn't have anything to lose. You know, I, I don't think, I don't think the age was really, didn't really matter that much. I mean, if, if, if right now I didn't have anything to lose, I would, you know, and I have, I, I've started multiple other companies, you know, since then. And these companies, nothing really bad would have happened if they didn't work out. So so that was the main thing is I think it's just, I didn't have anything to lose. Yeah. Yeah. And I, just calling back again to the beginning, like a lot of people have a hard time believing this lifestyle is just supported off of um, like your, the, the business that you built. So what, so the money that you made from it, obviously some of it goes into lifestyle, but where have you reinvested that money? Has it all gone back into Vertica or did you, you know, traditional investments, new businesses, like where are you putting all the, all the profit? Um, I mean, you know, most of it's yeah been from Vertica. The money that I've made from Vertica, I've, I think um, in the beginning I was not smart with. Um, but since then, I, I think I've, I've learned a lot and I've gotten a lot smarter with my, my investments. Um, in 2015, I started a hoverboard brand um, the, called Nitwit that did you know pretty well for about a year until people didn't want the hoverboards anymore. Um, so I made a lot of money, you know, with Nitwit in probably nine months. That was a good money-making thing. Um, at some point, I started an order fulfillment company. Um, so we do order fulfillment for some local local brands here. Already, I've got the warehouse. Already, already got the employees. I've got a you know pallet racks and forklift, and I'm already set up for it. So um, that's you know a little bit of extra income um, buying this building, and you know I rent out uh, a couple spaces, vacant spaces in this building. That was a you know a good good money-making investment. Um, I've got, you know, some other properties that I've invested in. Um, I've got, you know, two hangers, a short-term rental in Breckenridge. Um, and I'm kind of in the process of buying, buying more real estate. Um, you know, I invested in crypto and that was a thing. Um, I, I just, if I think I can make a buck, um, I generally will try to, you know, I've bought and sold some snowmobiles. Um, I, uh, am in the process. I, I patented a dog toy. I'm starting a a brand around a, a dog toy, a Frisbee thrower, um, you know, just random shit. I, I, anywhere where I can kind of make a buck, I, I try to. Yeah. And I mean, this is one of the reasons I wanted you to come on is because a, a lot of the articles, you know, I do a ton of research before these and a lot of the articles I read, you know, you'll set the record straight and then people in the comments will still be like, oh yeah, he's lying. His parents definitely tossed it. It's like, it just doesn't make like, no matter how many times you say it, People are still like, oh, yeah, no, his parents definitely gave him some money here and there, and he definitely funded this. So that's why I wanted to see the other business side of you. I've realized that it doesn't matter what you say or do. There's there's always going to be all kinds of people who just fucking hate you for for your success, for your lifestyle, for, you know, values that differ from theirs, from from anything. I mean, it doesn't matter. You know, it's just 
they're mostly the people that I think hate me are are living a, a an unhappy life. They're they're stuck somewhere doing something that that they're not happy with, and I think that it irks them to see somebody else out there um, who is maybe not living the most traditional of lives um, and does go against the grain a little bit, but is actually truly um, happy and self-made, and they just want to. They don't want to believe that that is that that is possible. You know, they they want to they want to think in their head, well, you know, I'm in this situation because I have to be, and the only reason that that he's in a maybe a better situation is because it was gifted to him. So that somehow makes them feel better about you know their choices or their life that they've created for themselves. Um, and people are welcome to say and do whatever the fuck they want. I'm I'm out here living the greatest life that that I can live. So I yeah. don't really yeah. So I think, um, I think it's important to talk about the the Friday videos because, you know, uh, shit. I had I had the word in my head for it, but um, kind of like the outlandish marketing, the shock marketing, however you want to phrase it, that like did a like a I from my perspective growing up, like that's when I noticed Vertica, and I think that people have taken those Friday videos and how you market and attributed that to every single dramatic thing that happens in your life. So let's go over the Friday videos first before we get into everything else that isn't marketing. So yeah, the Friday videos were an interesting thing. I, in the beginning, I really cared what people thought about me and the company. And I was very conservative, preserve, very concerned with preserving an image of myself and the company. And once I saw the company kind of succeed and, and gain some momentum, I became a little bit less concerned about, you know, what pe what some individual person may may say on the internet because the company was was succeeding. It was you know it was gaining momentum on its own, and I I didn't really fully appreciate um, what an effect last Friday and all the Friday videos were going to have. I just kind of. You know, we were shooting guns and snowmobiling and, you know, skydiving and flying airplanes. And that, that was all stuff that we were actually doing. And I thought, like, wouldn't it be cool to, to document all the stuff that we're already doing, but put it together in almost like a story format that maybe takes place in like one day so that you're doing all this stuff. You know, normally, obviously, we're not doing all this stuff in one day. But what if we could, you know, create this little storyline where... We're doing all this cool shit in one day. Wouldn't that be, you know, cool? Because all these ski movies that, that, that have ever been made, they're just, they're so one dimensional. It's like, it's just skiing to music. You know, there's no, there's no like plot. There's nothing interesting that happens. There's no other cool shit going on. It's like just skiing to music. And I'm like, well, we're doing all this other cool stuff. Like let's combine it all into a video and like put it out there. So when we put it out there and it just, you know like broke the internet I, I didn't really, yeah, I didn't, I didn't anticipate that. And I, for a second, you know, when we were receiving, you know, death threats and hate mail from around the world, I got fired from my coach we all got fired from our coaching jobs. We got kicked out of CU campus. Um, you know, we were really, it was, it was a lot of stuff happened in a very short amount of time. I had the cops pulling me over, you know, five times in, in five days in Breckenridge and questioning me. And I mean, it was like, really an extreme reaction to this this video that we put out 
And for a little bit, you know, people on the internet were like, you know, you've ruined your company and, you know, yeah, good job, moron. Like that's the end of Vertica and like, you know, good riddance and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I don't know, maybe they're right. Like, I, you know, I don't, what the fuck do I know? Like, maybe this is the end of, end of my company. So for a while I was concerned. And when, when I saw the company, you know, not go under and people, there were a lot of people who really responded to it very positively. Um, and who really loved the video and who kind of, you know, saw that we weren't taking ourselves seriously. Some people thought that we were like totally serious about it. Um, and, but, uh, you know, some people were able to, to, to kind of see the, you know, the humor in it and whatever. And so I just, at some point, I remember I was faced with a choice and I, I could have taken the video down and sort of like apologized, or I could own it and just really go 10 times harder in the future. And so that's what I did. Um, you know, I created the apology video, which was just kind of like a fuck you to the world. Um, and then I created, you know, this Friday and next Friday and, you know, all the other, the, all the other videos that we've made and each one we've just tried to kind of like, you know, go harder and, and show people that, you know, we really don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so for anyone that is not familiar with the video it's basically just a video of you and your, you and your guys doing crazy shit, shooting guns, I think chasing a moose at one point, drifting your cars, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, as you said, everyone had a huge reaction to it and a complete overreaction. But I think that set the stage for now, like when something crazy happens to you and you start filming it, they think, oh, here he goes making another one of these videos. Like when you crash your plane, for example, everyone's saying, oh, this is just a continuation of what he was doing with those videos. Yeah, what I've realized is that you know, because of the internet now, everything that you do, it, it, it kind of creates this narrative, it creates this timeline. And so anytime you do anything, they'll do an internet search on you and they'll go back however long they can find stuff on you on the internet. And they'll kind of create this, this narrative and whether or not this narrative is accurate or even exists at all, you know, is neither here nor there. Um, these news sources, they don't give a fuck. They just want, you know, the next clickbait driven news, news piece. So it, it sort of creates this narrative and then they, you know, work off of that. And then the headlines say, you know, public scoff law, David Lesh, or, you know, it just, it, it just sort of sets in motion this, this image that you maybe never really intended for it to be the case. But, but once it was the case, I, I, I was trying to do my best to capitalize on it. Yeah. I mean, so do you want to give a, give uh, people the story of you? Of, I mean, you survived a plane crash is just the only way to put it. Like, so do you want to give a breakdown of what happened with that and kind of the, the backlash afterwards of the people, you know, thinking that it was intentional? Yeah. So part of it was um, uh, like a year before, coincidentally enough, um, we did an April Fool's Day press release on newschoolers.com um, that said that I had um, crashed my airplane smuggling drugs in Mexico and I was being held by a Mexican drug cartel and we had this terrible photo that went along with it that somehow people bought into anyway. So some people actually thought that I had crashed my plane with that and then after a while they realized it was you know April Fool's Day and they they figured out maybe it wasn't real, but some people still thought it was real after the fact they'd search it and see it. And so that then a year later, I bought, you know, a new airplane and it had an engine failure over the uh, coast of California and I put it into the ocean 
was fine, got rescued by the Coast Guard. And uh, so, so the, you know, all the media sources, all the news stations around the world picked it up. And the first round of, of you know, news stories was, oh my God, you know, this, this pilot, you know, survives plane crash, yada, yada, yada. But then a day later, they started doing research and they're like, oh, well, you know, he faked this plane crash in Mexico and maybe this is also staged. And look at all these crazy videos that he made for publicity and he owns this clothing company and, oh, he must be doing this to promote his clothing company. And so this like, you know, this whole thing became a thing. So then I had a whole second round of interviews with all these news stations around the world for that. So I did all those interviews and I tried to, you know, dispel any, any myth of me actually, you know, doing this on purpose, which would have been fucking insane. Um, and what, then what really is interesting now is however many years later, that fucking Trevor Jacobs guy actually crashed his fucking airplane on purpose as a publicity stunt. Um, and I, I think, you know, he's kind of in like the snowboard world. And I, I have to believe that he, whether or not he thought I did it on purpose or not, I have to believe that he saw the amount of media uh, attention that I got from that. And I, I have to believe that I'm some of the reason that he decided to, you know, buy that shitty little airplane and fucking crash it on purpose in the desert. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you, did that rehash any of the, any of the rumors again? Like were people reaching back out to you? Hey, this guy just did this and uh, you did they this did, hypothetically. Did using out, but when he, when he, you know, crashed his plane and it was all over the news, um, a lot of the news articles did reference my plane crash in there because, um, you know, there was obviously a lot of parallels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what a lot of people got hung up on with your plane crash was that you start that you pulled out your phone and started recording. Right. And uh, I mean, yeah, do you want to defend that for yourself? Because I, I personally have no issue with someone recording crazy shit happening around them and being level headed enough to record. But I think it's I, I, I was so surprised that people were surprised by that. It's like Everywhere you go, every motherfucker is pulling out their iPhone to record everything. Like you go on your, you know, your Instagram feed. It's just crazy ass videos that are, everything is now being recorded. You know, people have dash cams. Everyone's got an iPhone. Everything's, you know, live streaming and it's, everything is recorded now. So I didn't really like understand like, oh, you're, I'm floating around in the fucking ocean with nothing to do until I get rescued. And like, you're surprised. I'm trying to hold my phone out of the water so it doesn't sink in the goddamn Pacific Ocean. And you're like surprised that I took my phone and had the wherewithal to like record it. Like, what the fuck else am I going to do? I'm sitting around for 45 minutes, freezing my ass off, like keeping my phone out of the water. The thing might as well be recording. Like I, yeah. I didn't, like, I, I can't, I think mostly the people who were surprised by that were like an older generation that like just is not used to having a camera on them all the time and pulling out and recording stuff. I don't think like the younger generation, this new generation would have been shocked that I like had my phone on me and was recording, you know? Yeah. Well, some people like they thought the fact that you weren't freaking out about it was verifiable evidence that you were in on, like you planned it because you weren't completely useless in an emergency situation. Yeah. It's funny, you know, and, and like that plane crash was, you know, it was a thing. It, it was, it, it, it definitely was a gnarly thing to go through, but like I'm an extreme athlete, you know, I've, I've almost killed myself however many times. I mean, I've done crazy gnarly shit like on purpose. And this, this was like, it was like to me less insane than all the other shit. I mean, 
I bought a car to fucking flip it on purpose. Like we flipped it with no roll cage and no helmets on. And like I jumped a car, you know, 80 feet over a creek and I jumped the thing 120 feet in New Zealand and like bent the whole frame in half. And my buddy broke his back dropping the car off of a cliff. And like, I mean, you know, I taught myself to, to speed fly off of a mountain and like got towed into the ground with a snowmobile from 60 feet up and like all this crazy ass shit. So like, you know, like being in the ocean floating around for 45 minutes was like, I mean, you know, it was just wasn't, I wasn't like freaking out to the extent that I couldn't use my phone. You know, I'm like, I'm a pilot. You learn to handle emergency situations like being calm or you die. You know, that's like the only other, the only other option. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So when, yeah, when I saw that and people were, whatever, man, comments, people are saying stupid shit in the comments all the time, especially for a figure that they just don't, they can't relate to and don't understand at all. Right. These people are not me. They're not, they're doing crazy shit. They're sitting in their, their house, you know, fucking watching television. They're not used to handling crazy emergency situations and having to stay calm doing it. Like people have no idea. Yeah. I mean, so with the, like with the recent trouble you've been in, has there been more of the speculation like, Oh, everything's for marketing or like, Oh, he does. He has a complete reckless disregard for like where, like this narrative has been attached to you. So like what's been going on recently? I mean, recently, this whole deal with um, basically, you know, I have to be kind of careful about what I say about this because I'm currently appealing this this whole nonsense. But the gist of it is um, over a course of two years, I was charged with a total of 12 federal petty offenses Um, during COVID, during Black Lives Matter. People were at their houses really tuned up um, and bored out of their fucking mind. The news uh, stations didn't have anything to report on. And I kind of became this, this source of, you know, this person of interest. Um, and so, uh, basically the gist of it is I was charged with 12 crimes with no evidence at all, besides my Instagram posts. Um, they dropped 10 out of these 12 charges because they were ridiculous with absolutely no proof. Um, and somewhere along, you know, in the process of all this, I really started, um, to, to try to push back a little bit and to try to fuck with people um, and to try to point out the, the hypocrisy of the situation, but also just the insanity um, of the government uh, charging somebody with crimes solely based on an Instagram post, um, which is just like the most insane, unconstitutional thing um, that I have you know, personally witnessed. And I think it pokes big holes in our, our legal system and exposes some real issues. Um, and so that's why I've kind of been determined to see this through um, to the end. And we're currently, you know, appealing it. And um, it's, it's been an interesting process. It's been now three years in, in the making. And at this point, um, I don't really have anything to lose. You know, I'm not going to jail or something bad that's going to happen to me. So um, at this point, it's just kind of um, something interesting for me to, to do and to to kind of fight back a little bit yeah and i think it like kind of harkens back to back when you released friday and you know all it's just a video at the end of the day it was just a video you didn't hurt anybody on friday i mean potentially besides yourselves but you get fired from your job and you get let go as a coach and now you know mob mob rule on the internet is making you get prosecuted by the government so it's just like it's the yeah, it's, it's yeah. very similar you know in the in last friday we were um you know shooting guns out of the car and they thought that we were like in neighborhoods like you know fucking drive-by shooting style like letting off rounds into these houses 
And it's like, what the fuck? Like, no, dude. Like, did you ever get a complaint of like people shooting guns in Breckenridge or like, did anyone have a bullet come through their window? Like we weren't just like driving around shooting guns in the houses. Like what the fuck are you talking about? Um, but it was the same kind of a thing where they, they were, you know, they didn't charge me with anything because they didn't have any, any evidence obviously, but they were trying to charge me with crimes. They were, you know, pulling me over and they were questioning me and the whole deal. They were questioning my friends and they were doing everything they could do to try to trump up some charges. But it was the same kind of deal where they were really looking to prosecute somebody solely based on something they posted to the internet with no other evidence at all and no complaints, nothing. You know, it's just like the same thing with all these Instagram pictures that I posted. There was no, obviously no witnesses. There was no complaints. There was no property damage. There was nothing that was done to anyone or anything besides my picture that I posted to the internet. And that's just a crazy fucking slippery slope when the government starts going after people for pictures they post to the internet. Or, I mean, it's going to get even worse with deep fakes. You know, you, you, you superimpose somebody's face onto uh, them committing a crime and then, oh, well, there's, you know, there's a video on the internet of you doing this. It must, it must be real, you know? Yeah. It's insane. The whole, the whole thing is insane. Yeah. With how easy, you know, image manipulation is now, with how easy Photoshop is, and, you know, uh, the ability to edit video and all this stuff, it's like, you gotta, you, you can't just charge people with crimes from what they post to the internet. Like you have to, there should be something that happened in the real world. You know, somebody should say, hey, this person fucking did this, or you know, there should be some evidence um, before you just go charging people with crimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I mean, I gotta ask, like, why troll people with a, with a photo of you on the log at hanging, uh, hanging lake and like shitting into maroon like like what's what do you gain from it um with all especially with all I, this trouble that's come from it what do i gain from it um one the whole thing definitely blew up into more of a thing than i anticipated it would um i did want to you know ruffle some feathers and push some people's buttons because um i discovered that there's this whole kind of sect of of people especially in colorado um, and I'd call them like eco warriors where they're just very um, hypocritical uh, Karens who freak out because they're told to freak out and they don't actually use one ounce of brain power to actually think about, you know, what, what, what they're doing or if this actually is something that is wrong or bad for the environment, they just kind of do what they're told. Um, and these are the people that I, that I really want to fuck with the most. And so those all, you know, the picture of me shitting in the lake and, standing on the log at Hanging Lake and all this was just a good way to, to fuck with these people that I really despise. And in the process, just kind of do something interesting, you know, like just, I don't know, like it was the middle of like COVID, nothing was going on. Like travel wasn't really a thing. I just, you know, it just, my employee and I kind of cooked up this whole this whole scheme, you know, during, during that time, we just kind of thought it was, it was just a funny way to, to, to fuck with people and get some free publicity and just do something interesting, basically. Um, and it definitely turned into more of a thing than, than we thought it would, but, um, you know, it was, it, it was an interesting wild ride, you know, I don't know. I, I, and it's not done yet. I mean, there's still, we'll see what happens, uh, you know, with the appeal, but, um, I don't know. It was just kind of something to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. I mean, you definitely got more than you bargained for, but I think that 
making content to ruffle feathers, like, I don't think that's, you know, you end up with a, a felony for that, you know, or I don't even know if you, you that was on the table, but still. No, it's not a felony. It, they're yeah. federal charges, but they're petty offenses. It's like if you didn't pick up your dog shit in a national park or something, this is a petty offense. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of it, I think a lot of it came to from um, my friend Dan Bilzerian, who he really ruffles people's feathers and he's made a very successful living for himself being this this person who is very controversial and i think that he's done a very good job at at poking you know poking people and pushing buttons and being someone of interest that people talk about and love him or hate him they talk about him and they know who he is and he's been able to um, really monetize that and capitalize um, on the, the fame that he's created for himself. And so I, I realized in my, my years of friendship, I think with him that any press is good press. Um, and as long as you're not out there, you know, kidnapping children and murdering baby seals, like it will be okay. You know, as long as you're not actually doing horrible things out in the world, um, you know, what is he doing? He's fucking a bunch of chicks and like traveling around and, you know, living his life. What am I doing? I'm posting pictures of me shitting in a fucking lake or standing on a log. Like I'm not, you know, it's nothing. Um, so if you're able to get a reaction from people out of such, you know, insignificant things, then it's a good way to, um, you know, to promote yourself or your brand or just kind of get some interest going. Yeah. Well, I mean, en environmentalists like to attack, like, so, so some people say, oh, you know, it's just content, whatever. And, you know, I, I definitely subscribe to that to some degree. Um, but then some people say that you're like, actually like, uh, you hate the environment, you don't care at all. And uh, like, for example, with the, the snowmobile off off a jump at Vale, they're like, oh, I don't know the exact lines and I'm sure they've been directed towards you. So I think you know them better, but they, they were somehow arguing that you riding a snowmobile at a place where there's, you know, there's cats driving around all the time. There's like, somehow you're doing something that's worse than the typical operations of a ski resort. The whole thing is so fucking ridiculous and so funny. And what's what's crazy about it is that when when the news tells people the news tells people to be upset, they get upset. You know, they don't they don't think, oh, okay, is this actually something bad? They just do exactly what they're told. And that was part of what was so concerning during COVID is people just did as they were told. They were told to stay in their house. They were told to wear a mask. They were told to get the vaccine. They were told to do all this stuff, and they just fucking did it. Um, and I just thought that Americans were a little bit more free thinking than that. Um, and I think COVID exposed just how, um, you know, robotic uh, and, and manipulated everyone is in this country. And I was just another kind of example of, of them being able to just easily be manipulated by the news. Um, what's been really interesting is just recently, um, Vail, Keystone actually specifically, um, was going to, they got uh, permission from the Forest Service to put in another lift. They're going to plow down some more forest and put it in a lift. Well, in the process of doing this, they bulldozed an entire road that was not authorized and they got caught doing it. Um, and so now this was in the news. I post a picture to the internet harming no one. I get charged with 12 federal petty offenses. Keystone, the same place where I supposedly jumped a snowmobile, plows a fucking road in with a bulldozer, unauthorized. There's no charges filed. 
nobody has to go to court. They're like, oh, you have to like slow down your lift, lift uh, you know, installation for a while. Like it's like so insane at the exact same place where I supposedly, you know, jumped a snowmobile. Um, I mean, it's just like it, the, the, the hypocrisy is just an irony is fucking insane. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah, like people will rightly claim like, okay, yeah, you're an asshole sometimes, but they get way more upset with you for, you know, just being obnoxious than they would do for something that's like legitimately bad for the environment and bad for the ecosystem. I mean, look, everything we do is bad for the environment, right? Like yeah. driving your car, flying on an airplane, fucking driving, you know, up to go skiing. They plowed down all this forest and built lodges and lifts. And I mean, obviously it's all bad for the environment, right? So you have to kind of pick and choose your battles and choosing your battle to be some guy who, you know, may or may not have jumped a snowmobile like at a terrain park jump at a mountain that was closed with I mean it's just like like the whole thing is like just so fucking absurd um and the fact that it didn't even happen is like makes it even more absurd um it's just I I have my hard time wrapping my brain around people's thought process but yeah I mean and you're bringing the heart of it in Colorado I think uh Colorado is probably the the center of that discussion in America about environmentalism and it's just uh it's got to be interesting yeah the the whole hanging lake thing was interesting too because you know at the end of the day the picture I posted was me just standing on a log I wasn't even in the water I wasn't I was standing on a log right the bottom of that trailhead is the most expensive stretch of highway that has ever been built in America going through Glenwood Canyon they fucking blasted that entire canyon. There is a, you know, six, four to six lane, uh, two lane, you know, two level divided highway that goes to that entire canyon. They blasted in parking lots and, you know, bike trails and a railroad uh, that goes through there and all this stuff. And they just completely decimated, you know, the entire, the entire thing. There's mining operations everywhere with, you know, my, mining, um, uh, you know, lakes at the bottom that are just disgusting. And, all this shit, but like this one dude standing on a fucking log is somehow like, you know, the public economic or uh, environmental scoff law of Colorado. It's just like so insane. Yeah, yeah. And then I already know that some people are gonna be like, oh, you're not, that they're gonna be upset that same, oh, well, what if those photos aren't Photoshopped, but point. Well, that's but, the funny thing. Yeah, like. If the photos weren't Photoshopped, who the fuck cares? I mean, you know, some guy sitting on a log, like who in the fuck cares? It's just, it's so, it's so mind boggling. And then two months after I was there, a forest fire comes through and completely destroys the area. And then a mudslide comes through and completely destroys the area. And it's like, you're concerned about me sitting on a fucking log. I mean, it's just like, it's so insignificant. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. Well, you got your hands full with that battle going on right now. So Right now it's chilled yeah. out. I mean, it hasn't really yeah. been a thing for, you know, a year or two, but yeah. Now now people forget quickly. Yeah. yeah. So what I mean, what's coming up next for you? I mean, any innovations with Vertica? You said you mentioned that you got this dog toy coming up. Let's do the, the what you got planned for the future, then we'll do some viewer questions. Um yeah, I'm doing uh patented this dog toy. Um producing those right now. I already made the frisbees for them. Um I'm you know trying to buy buy some more real estate right now. Um, refinancing my, my my current properties. I've got some new women's stuff coming out for Vertigo. We've got, I don't know, just some new new products, more colorways. Um, you know, not not too much different. We're just slowly kind of expanding the brand and the line. All right, uh, let's do some viewer questions, 
and then uh, we can get you out of here. So first viewer question, it's the recurring one. What is your hot take in skiing? I don't know if I have any controversial opinions about skiing. For a long time, I was like not into the no pole thing. Um, I just, you know, thought that aesthetically skiers should have poles. Um, but I you know now there's kind of a new creative side of skiing where kids who don't use poles are doing actually stuff with their hands are doing hand plants and they're doing different kinds of grabs that maybe you couldn't do if you had poles. So I guess I'm open to the no pole thing now, but honestly, I don't really have too many controversial opinions about skiing because I really don't closely follow skiing anymore. I don't, I couldn't tell you 10 new pro skiers from the past couple of years. I have no idea. I'm totally tuned out of that whole world. Um, I, I, you know, it's just, it's just not my main focus anymore. Um, I guess if I did have one opinion of skiing is that it's definitely gone in a spin to win direction, which I think is not great for the sport. Um, the sport, I think really, you know, the, the name style is in the sport, right? Freestyle skiing. I think style has to remain a big part of the sport. And um, I think like people like Henrik Arlo are, you know, very key in um, pushing that, that style aspect of the sport. And I'd like to see more people that are more, focus, more focused on style and less focused on um, spin to win. Yeah, there you have it. All right, Emmett Davis, he's the founder of Vishnu Skis. I don't know how, how close you follow uh, small businesses and skiing. Did you ever get investigated by the FAA for crashing your plane for clout? So, I mean, you could see what he believes in, for that scenario, but did you ever get investigated by the FAA? Um, no, the FAA never had any concerns of it being real or fake. Um, neither did the NTSB. The NTSB did an investigation um, and I sent them over all the footage and stuff that I had um, from that flight. And I actually had footage of inside the airplane. The chick that I was with had a video of the whole panel like seconds before the motor quit. Um, and so they looked at everything and, um, you know, they said it was an engine failure. Mm -hmm. uh, so no, there was never any question by the NTSB or the FAA that it was, you know, staged or not. Yeah. And that plane is just sitting at the bottom of the ocean floor now? Yep, it's now a fish habitat. Shit. All right, uh, Scards, uh, what's your best bee divine story? I guess, uh, you know, my, my most memorable time with bee was um, one of the summers that we were living in New Zealand for their winter. And we bought this, um, it was like a 1988 Subaru Legacy. And... Uh, we were skiing snow park that was when snow park was still a thing and every day we were driving to snow park and uh there was this this creek that um, was right next to the road as you were driving up up the road to snow park and it was set up to be like a perfect gap jump for a car and um we we eyed it up for like a year before that and we finally were like we just have to fucking do this thing and so we, we set up to do it and we kind of scoped it out and we cleared the in-run and we put our ski helmets on and we kind of calculated how much speed we thought we'd need to clear the creek. Um, and, you know, it was about maybe, I don't know, 
60 feet that we had to travel. And the most sketchy part of it was the, the outrun um, to, we had to kind of narrowly gap this, this fence and this signpost. It was really, there was no margin for error and we were going fast. We, you know, we had to go about 70 miles an hour to hit this thing. And we, you know, it was a right drive car, the steering wheel's on the right-hand side. And while we were setting this up, you know, a whole, whole, whole crowd of people had formed and it was determined that I was going to drive. And for some reason, you know, B sitting next to me was not going to do anything, but it, you know, just be risky to, to himself. But he decided that he wanted to, to just go along for the ride. Um, and, you know, B looks like he's a homeless person. He's got, you know, dreads. He doesn't shower for months at a time. He smells fucking disgusting. And so, you know, B kind of climbs into the car and it just kind of looks like this, this, this homeless dude sitting next to me. And uh, we had a crowd that, that had gathered and we fucking, you know, just sent it and we did it somehow perfectly. We put like 800 pounds of rocks in the trunk um, so that the nose wouldn't kind of, you know, dive down as we went off the, the jump. And um, we, we stomped it and we spent the whole rest of that summer just like blasting through streams and off-roading this car and jumping the thing, you know, 100 feet. And um, it, it was just a really, really fun summer. So I guess my, my B Divine story would be that summer in New Zealand when we were just, you know, we were just having a blast in, in Wanaka, um, just traveling around. And, you know, there were a couple of fights that broke out and we were skiing and I got my pilot's license down there and we were renting airplanes and we buzzed, you know, snow park underneath the lift and flying all around, you know, uh, New Zealand, the South Island. And it was just a, a, a fun, fun summer of making videos and um, skiing and just jumping the shit out of this car. Yeah, that's awesome. And I mean, he's, he's definitely a recurring character in your videos. And uh, I, how do you guys even know each other in the first place? Oh God, I've known B since he was like 14 years old. I met him in Whistler. I was uh, 16 and I went to Whistler for the summer. Um, I drove like 36 hours straight from Wisconsin um, and uh, spent the summer in Whistler. And uh, B was, I think, 14 and just uh, hanging out and skiing uh, COC. I was skiing COC in High North. Um, and uh, he was just like this grungy little fucking kid who was just like running around you know being a hooligan and skiing and we kind of just became friends through that yeah that's awesome yeah i always like the i like the videos of you uh like chopping off his dreads and just generally fucking with him <laughs> yeah he's a character for sure i mean people just mistake him as like a homeless guy everywhere he goes and he actually makes good money you know he's a contractor he builds houses and He's, uh, he's got a good setup there in Tahoe, but he like looks like a homeless person for sure. Yeah. All right. Um, Blonde Gabe, at this point, are you just trying to get a bag off of skiing or do you actually care about the future of the sport? Get a bag off of skiing? That means like make money off of yeah. skiing? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I care about the sport. I, I definitely care about my life and happiness more than I care about skiing as a sport. But no, I absolutely care about skiing. I still ski a lot and i you know i i want to continue to to push myself in in you know in my skiing and i i care about the sport but definitely not not as much as i used to i'm not as you know tuned into it as i used to be yeah do you think that it's it's worth pursuing a career as a professional skier you know like somebody that was like kind of your level of skiing or pay, maybe slightly you know somewhere where you're good but you're not the best in the field like is it worth pursuing it as a career even if you're the best in the field i would not pursue it for financial reasons i mean 
you're risking your life. You're going to destroy your fucking body, which you don't care about when you're 20, but when you're 60 and you've blown apart your knees and, you know, broken your back or your neck or like, you're going to, you're going to feel it when you're older for sure. So, um, I would caution anyone from pursuing it unless they just really fucking love it. And they're, they want to do that no matter what, you know, the only reason to pursue skiing would be is if, even if it wasn't a profession, you would still be out there doing all the same shit. Um, but to pursue it for financial reasons would not be smart. There you have it. All right. Uh, Ankilla, what's your uh, favorite, favorite ski beef you've ever had? So what's your, what's the best uh, rivalry you've had with someone in skiing? Um, I mean, I guess really the only thing that comes to mind is I remember as a kid really um, growing up with Tanner Hall kind of introducing like the gorilla stees, you know, the, the thug style of skiing. And I remember just being like so jealous of Tanner Hall and just like hating him so much because he was this like wannabe thug, like gangster. Um, and I, I really just fucking hated the guy for absolutely no reason. And later on, you know, him and I became friends and um, it was an interesting process to kind of actually meet him, you know, in real life and, and, and see what he's actually like. Um, and it gave me a lot more insight into, you know, why he is the way that he is. And, um, but, but for a while, I really vehemently hated Tanner Hall for absolutely no reason. That, I did not expect that answer at all. That is such a random person to, <laughs> to bring up, but I love that. Yeah, that's a good answer. Um, all right, The Caruso, what is your relationship like with Level One Productions and Josh Berman? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> um, you know, <sighs> It's such a loaded question. <laughs> um, a lot of people in the, in the industry are not big fans of Josh Berman um, for, I think, a lot of good reasons. I have had my own personal experiences with him that, um, you know, we're both good and bad. I don't think that he's a bad guy. Um, I have nothing against the guy, honestly, at this point. I don't, I don't hold on to that kind of, that kind of beef. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very much glad that I am not him. <laughs> um, and I can see why people have had negative experiences with him. Um, but I myself don't have anything against the guy. Um, and I wish him nothing but the best. We can leave it at that. Unless you want to get into specifics about why people might dislike him. Um, I mean, you know, he... he I think can be described as a, um, a ruthless businessman who has um, sacrificed personal and business relationships for um, the sake of making money. Um, and, you know, he's definitely rubbed some people the wrong way. Um, that being said, you know, I'm sure people say the same thing about me. So you know, it's, it's whatever, you got to take everything with a grain of salt and you just have to kind of go based on your personal experiences with, with someone and people who, who, you know, have an opinion of somebody that they haven't met or know nothing about or know very little about. It just doesn't mean anything. Yeah. 
I think that might have been a callback. I think I was listening to a different interview where you mentioned that uh, you made it. You I think maybe you filmed with them for for one movie and it didn't go so great. I think that's maybe the origin of uh, of that question. Yeah, I mean, he was sort of known for um, exploiting a lot of young skiers who were just coming up and um, just you know kind of milking their sponsors or giving them sponsors, milking their sponsors for whatever money. Um, that he could, and then um, just kind of using people and then disposing of them. Um, that I think was most skiers complaint with him, but there's also other people in the industry who, you know, they had their own business dealings with him that I think didn't go very well. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, all right, last question, Grant Harris. Uh, what is your advice for young entrepreneurs? Um. My, I guess, advice would be to, um, if you see a hole in a market, if you see a product or service that is not being met or being met well, to, to plug that hole and be prepared to work harder than you ever worked in your life to make that work. Um, and if that does not work, to try something else. You know, the, the people who are entrepreneurs who are successful generally don't just start Facebook and then that's the end of it. They, they've had a series of, of things that, that have not worked um, and things that have you know, not, not panned out and they've learned from those things. Um, and it's really the, the process in learning that then eventually will lead you to some level of success. Um, and the, the successful entrepreneurs out there are just very prepared to take risks, work hard and never give up no matter what. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's some solid advice. A lot of the other guys we've talked to that, you know, their business has been going on over a decade. It's find a hole in the market and then plug it and be the be the solution to a problem, basically. Don't be another solution that already exists. Yeah, for sure. And even once you are that solution, just be prepared to endure some shit. <laughs> yeah. Cool. David, thanks so much for your time, man. I appreciate it. I know that you're all over the place. Happy to catch you before you go to Italy. And uh, yeah, I mean, you want to plug anything before, uh, before I let you go? Where can people find you? Um, you can find me on Instagram, David Lesh, L-E-S-H. You can find Vertica on Instagram, V-I-R-T-I-K-A or Vertica.com. And uh, yeah, buy some gear. You'll love it.